Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Kerr, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Kerr. Let me start by asking you something that I think is quite simple. If one side has 60 and one side has 40, which one won? If I were to ask that simple question to a class of primary school children, they'd all know that the correct answer is, of course, 60, and that'd be the end of it. So why then has that rationale not been clearly accepted by grown adults today who've insisted on stating that because 40% of MPs voted against Boris Johnson in the confidence vote yesterday, it is the start of the end. A loss, if there ever was one. An embarrassment, a humiliation and an indication that he has no mandate to govern. Some Labour MPs too have been falling over themselves to say that the 40% vote against the Prime Minister almost indicates that he and the Conservative Party have failed or are not fit for office. But uh, hold on a second, because if I cast my mind back to the 2019 general election, many of the Labour MPs were elected into seats where way more than 40% of the electorate voted against them but yet, due to the Brexit vote split, the Labour MPs got in. So if indeed they do think that a 40% vote against you means that you've got no mandate, etc., then uh, what are they doing in their roles? You see, so many people, all they seem to care about these days is their own self-interest. The media, for example, will drag out this story for weeks to come. Speculation, is there going to be another vote? Yes or no? Will they change the rules? How is it all going to work? All of that, of course, will be done for their own clicks and eyeballs. The opposition, well, they'll be doing the same thing, but to secure power for themselves. And as for the self-indulgent rebel MPs, many of whom, by the way, wouldn't even have their jobs if it wasn't for Boris Johnson, well, you guessed it, they'll be doing exactly the same. So the losers in all of this is us, the electorate. Because what we need right now, irrespective, by the way, of your political persuasion, is stability and for this country to move forward once and for all. If we want to change our leadership, we've got a general election in 2024. So I'll end, as I began, with a reminder that if you have 60 and 40, 60 is the winner, and that, my friends, is the end. If you're still struggling with that, then I politely suggest that you go and speak to a five-year-old. Well, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, my panel, all the men out there, you're in for a treat because I've just realised it's ladies' night. We've got broadcaster Sophie Corcoran, Ashley Frawley, a sociologist based at Swansea University, and political commentator Dominique Samuels. I've just realised and I've said if there's any men watching, it's ladies' night and it's a treat for you, but in this day and age, I can't really say that, can I? I've got to say if there's any men watching, any women watching, anyone with a cervix, anyone with us, <laughs> whatever. My point is, in summary, it's a treat because we've got three great panellists for you tonight. And you know the drill on June and co by now, don't you? It's not just about us. 
It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? What do you think to some of the stories that we're going to be discussing? Get in touch with me. You can email me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. Don't forget already, if you haven't, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, download our app. Uh, we're all across social media. And as I always say, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I love this show, but I need to go out, worry not, take me with you. Uh, we're on the radio, DAB Plus, so wherever you are, if you're watching or listening tonight, you are very, very welcome. Now, uh, I feel pleased, actually. I've got my little rant off my chest about 60-40. Um, very briefly, ladies, what do you think about it? I'll start with you, Ashley. Yeah, Partygate really annoys me because it's become this really infantilized discussion of the failure of policymakers to act as role models for us. Like, like we're children and our naughty parents have failed to follow the rules of the household. Instead, I think we should be having a grown-up discussion about the fact that our leaders made rules that they themselves clearly did not believe in. Mm. And instead, what we're doing is we are transforming the rules into these like biblical commandments that have been handed down from on high instead of something that was that should have been debated in society and agreed on in a democratic society. And this matters because I think there are really deeply undemocratic undertones to this discussion. Um, instead of having a debate, which is what I think we should be having, about whether or not we handled the pandemic correctly, whether or not the rules were right or just or even effective, um, we're having a debate about cake. I mean, it's ridiculous. And what's going to happen is when there's a crisis again, because a lot of people are saying that this was a dress rehearsal for the climate crisis and climate lockdowns, that's something that people have actually suggested. Are we going to be able to fight back against that? Because we've not had an adult conversation about whether or not that was the right thing to do. Monique? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. But I think just to respond um, to what you were saying specifically about 60-40, I think the issue is, is that even by um, the government's own estimation, um, they were hoping for under 100 MPs to vote um, against the Prime Minister. And the fact that 148 MPs voted against um, the Prime Minister, up to 75% um, of MPs that aren't on the Prime Minister's payroll voted against him. You can say it's just, you know, people being self-indulgent. I thought it was a but, secret ballot. So how the, do you know did what? Well, people have sort of made their own estimations. And, I mean, that's how we know how many voted against him in the first place. But they were expecting under 100, and they got 148, which is obviously bad. It's worse than um, Theresa May, and it's worse than, than Margaret Thatcher. Theresa May, though she did better than Boris Johnson, she ended up resigning six months later. So... No matter no, how you so, roll the dice, so it's, not, it's, not, it's not good for the Prime Minister. But I just sit and I just think, so what? I've seen all these analyses today of Thatcher did this and May did this and, oh, if you look fast-forward... And I think, haven't you lot got better things to do with your time? But the thing 60 is... 60% won, end of story, move on. Sophie, am I wrong? Well, I actually think it was probably a loss for everybody, but no bigger a loss for the party itself. I mean, what were MPs thinking of trying to oust the Prime Minister in the middle of the cost of living crisis when there's a war in Europe and we've got two crucial by-elections coming up? Nobody wants to vote for a divided party. And it was a massive own goal, a really bad decision by opportunistic MPs that are completely misguided and they've been led adrift by their own egos. And what's more important is that the Northern MPs specifically, I know Deanna Davison did vote against the Prime Minister. Because they they're on the they, verge of losing their seats. Their That's seats why. If it wasn't for Boris, but they're on the Boris verge of losing them because of the him, though. Decade. Yeah, but do they think no that one's... Jeremy Hunt is going to win? Because I think if they think that Jeremy Hunt is the solution, then they deserve. But to that's a different seats. conversation but entirely. Replace, the, replace the issue, the sorry, the issue is, is that 
one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, isn't even because of Partygate. It's because the Prime Minister is not the person that people elected in 2019. He's turned into a, an eco-fanatic. He locked the country down. He's raising taxes. He's willingly raising people's energy bills. He's not doing things that a Conservative person or a Conservative Prime Minister would do. So I would agree with you. I would agree with you if Boris Johnson was this great guy who was doing all these Conservative policies, but he's not stuck to his manifesto. Who's and he's gonna, pretty crap, who's gonna take to be honest. Because it's not going to be a backbencher. You're not going to get someone like Steve Baker take over. It's going to be one of the people that... I, in the I agree. There's no, al I agree there's no alternative. There's no change. And just I because agree, you but... get rid of a Prime Minister doesn't mean you're going to get someone better. Because don't forget, the Conservative got rid of Thatcher and ended up with Major. But Eight perhaps this right? is what Boris needed, though, because, look, biggest example being, he's talking about cutting taxes. Why is he all of a sudden talking about cutting taxes? Because he was basically nearly forced out by his own MPs, including MPs that are traditionally low-tax, like David Davis MP, for example, like Andrew Brigden. That's the reason why he's now talking about lowering taxes. Ashley? I think whenever a big story like this makes the headlines, we need to look at... This is what we are supposed to talk about. But you need to look at what we're not actually talking about. And I think we need to, uh, we are being redirected. Our attention is being deflected away from the key issue here, which is what you're talking about now. That's not what's in the headlines. That's not, the, it, it, what, why people think this has happened is because of Partygate. It's not because he's not stuck to his manifesto. Um, mm. It's because he didn't follow the rules. And what we're doing is we're opening the door that's what legacy media is focusing on. Yeah. The real people think that he's been a disappointment all around. Even GB News was in um, Boris Johnson's constituency today, and even the reporter said herself that people are more actually talking about him as a constituency MP and not the fact that he ate a bit of birthday cake one night. Mm. He's a crap prime minister right now, I think. That's just... The fact of it. Well, yeah, you see, Dominique says is a rubbish prime minister, but I can tell you a lot of people are emailing in and you're still supporting him. And for me personally, I just get to the point now, I just think so many of them, they're just as bad as each other. And what I want for this country now is a form of stability and for us to move forward. It's all right talking about manifesto promises and this, that and the other. But at the end of the day, have you seen the state of the globe? It was not just this country, by the way. It was almost the global economy. We've had the pandemic. We've now got a war uh, in Europe and on and on it will go. The last thing we need to be doing, and I almost find it uh, an act of self-harm for our country, is by focusing on things like, do you want Jeremy Hunt or do you want Boris Johnson? To me, it's all self-serving, self-indulgent nonsense. Just pack it in, rally behind the leader and get on with doing your jobs. That's what I say. But Nigel says, Michelle... Your analysis is completely wrong. Ian says, how can you defend someone, Michelle, who's a criminal and a serial liar? I thought you were an honest, decent northerner, but I guess northerner. not. <laughs> I am an honest, decent northerner, uh, Ian, but I'm also one who just wants this country to prosper and move forward instead of having all of this. Well, you say it's not going to prosper with him, but unfortunately, when the alternatives are people like Jeremy Hunt, you've already seen he didn't do very well at all in the last uh, uh, contest for leader. I, so I don't understand I, why people look, think he's going to be the god now. Look, I accept that, but I knew that Boris Johnson would win the confidence vote. I said it was a waste of time because he'd win. However, why I'm happy about the confidence vote is because it is going to kick his butt to be fair, into line, quite well, into though. shape. When you think of things, like with Ukraine, I mean, Zelensky, done well. Zelensky, someone said today, thank God he didn't lose because he's my biggest ally. And this is a problem with the confidence vote. It's going to make us look like a joke on the world stage because we've got a war in Europe and our Prime Minister has undoubtedly been one of the best Sending friends to Zelensky. To 
And here we go, trying to kick him out of a birthday cake. I mean, we look like an absolute laughing stock as a country. What's wrong with sending billions to Ukraine? Well, I, personally, I don't think that Boris Johnson sending and, and billions got, to Ukraine is the We've got the, 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 new immigration, Minister, the new immigration bill coming on. He's cracking down on the protesters. He's doing things that the public want. And the good thing is, is that we've now put him in a position with Partygate and with the vote of no confidence of where he's worried. And it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. I agree, and, and but he's then... he's concerned, so he's going to start If the confidence the vote had never happened, he wouldn't have said all of a sudden, right now... I'm going to start thinking about tax cuts because but brilliant. Now that wasn't even on the agenda. Because now we've got him where we want him. Well, he was going to win anyway, but the point is won, that, you know, it's kicked him into line, which I like. Ashley, <laughs> your final word on this to you. I, I just want to reiterate that we need to draw a line under this and move on, but we cannot forget what we went through in the last two and a half years. My main concern is that we are now applying the rules much more stringently after the fact than we did at the time. Because I don't know about you, but I remember June 2020, and there were it was like, well, we can have some cake because we're at work, right? All of a sudden, we're sticking more to rules instead of questioning. We need to have an inquiry. inquiry. We need to think about what happened so that the next time something happens, we make sure that we act in the best way possible. We're not talking about that, and that is a really big deal. And you're right. I remember, you say, we'll all remember June 2020. I will certainly remember June 2020. I was in a hospital. Uh, I was completely alone. Uh, incredibly scary and worrying uh, time of my life. I wasn't allowed a single solitary visitor because of these inhumane, pathetic, ridiculous rules. I will never forget it. And when I say move on and just focus on the future, that is not me undermining the loss and the hair and the pain that many people, some of my viewers, will have experienced because of these inhumane rules. Uh, you know, absolutely, on the contrary, I feel for people, I was impacted by it myself. I just almost kind of separate the two now and just want us to move forward for the good of the country. And by the way, I see today, you might have noticed this, that monkeypox uh, has been it's designated bad. a notifiable <laughs> disease. Oh. I've got to tell it's you. It's like people were looking for something. You know, you know? This is the next thing now. I tell you, it does not wash with me, ladies and gentlemen, all of this stuff, because I sit here and I can see, hang on just a second, mm. I can see where this is inching and inching and inching. You know, stick your monkeypox where the sun doesn't shine. I think you've got 300 <laughs> not. But I do, I think you've got about 300 odd people mm. in this country with it now. I wonder how many people have got chickenpox, how many have got shingles, how many have got athlete's foot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. No, but I'm serious. Like, I think I feel like I've noticed a lot more people walking around in masks now, though, since monkeypox has been um, also in the news. Yeah. I, I think I've actually. Noticed I, I just it. think some of these people have an absolute obsession. So I've literally just come back from Davos in Switzerland, where I was actually reporting at the World Economic yeah. Forum, and people were saying we want climate lockdowns because it's good for people's mental health. I mean, what planet are you? Well, good. On? Lock yourself away. Then. Exactly. If you want <laughs> a lockdown, yeah. If you Don't want a lockdown. Yeah, if you want a lockdown, if you want to walk around wearing a mask, 10 masks, I don't really care, quite frankly, do what you want, but don't enforce it on the rest of us. Anyway, I promised myself I would only talk for a couple of minutes about Boris. Uh, I wanted to draw the line and move on. Uh, I got a bit carried away. We've been talking about it for a good 10 minutes, so I'm going to draw the line and move on uh, because it's the end of term for most university students. Uh, in fact, that's why we've got the treat of Sophie. Joining yep. us the end of yes. term. Uh, get this, though. Currently, eight universities are under investigation for offering poor quality degrees on average. A student finishes their education, get this, with approximately £45,000 worth of debt. Which kind of makes me think, uh, have you all got degrees on this panel? 
Oh, yeah. Got a PhD. Oh, PhD degree. You're in a degree progress. Uh, I've absolutely not. You can probably all tell. The viewers can probably <laughs> tell that the one without the degree on this panel is me. No. Um, but, Sophie, I've got to be honest, uh, in this day and age, I think degrees, this desperate desire for pretty much everyone to go to university and get a degree, I think degrees are massively undervalued. I think lazy, employee, lazy employers use them as a simple tick box filtering exercise rather than anything else. And I just think that they're losing a lot of their, their weight. Am I wrong? I, I would agree with you. And firstly, when you said only eight, only eight, because there should be a lot more than eight, let me tell you that now. But on that point, Tony Blair originally did the 50% university target to mask himself that he was improving social mobility, to pretend that that's what was happening. In actual fact, all it did was reverse it. And I'll tell you why, because now everybody has a degree. It's not something that makes the best of the best stand out anymore. It's almost a minimum requirement. So what's happening mm. now is that students like myself are being filtered out based on experience. And who's more likely yeah. to get experience? People that are from upper income backgrounds and have been to private school and have the connections. So before, People from my background who are intelligent could have gone to university and got the top jobs without worrying about who they know. Or, but now, because everybody's going to university and all that's filtering out is experience, it's actually elevated the upper class and the advantage that the upper class and the private school kids have over people from my sort of background. So in actual fact, it's done the opposite of what he intended it to do. I mean, what are you going to get with a fine art degree? I mean, well, a job in fine art. Yeah. Well, if you're from a, a wealthy background, you might do quite a lot with a fine arts degree. A job in politics mm -hmm. at this but, rate. But, yeah. But I think what happened here is they tried to use universities to solve problems that universities could not solve, which is, which is exactly what you're saying. Um, and so what happened was they looked, a, a lot happened, but they looked and they thought, okay, who moves up the social ladder? Ah, it's people with degrees. Ergo, if we give more people degrees, then more people will move up the social ladder. But I remember reading a study a long time ago that said if you were good looking, you were more likely to get raised out of poverty. So <laughs> does that mean we should then make all poor people good looking and we'll end <laughs> poverty? No, because the cause of poverty is not ugliness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, but it's the exact same logic. And instead of changing the outer structure of society, investing and in actually making things so that we have a strong economy, you just go and, oh, well, we'll just give everyone an, uh, a degree and then we'll solve all these problems. But you don't. What you end up doing is you make it so that you need a degree to do a job that does not actually require a degree. Or does not even pay that well, I've mm -hmm. noticed as well. It's, it's a bit of a scam and I think it's also an excuse to pay people not really that much because really degrees are about attaining jobs with a title rather than attaining a job with any real value which is really a shame and I think that's partly why we have such a problem with skills, why there's such a large skills gap in this country because we've convinced young people that what they need is to go to university when they may indeed not really be that academic so they end up going to say a non-Russell Group University doing a degree that employers necessarily won't necessarily be impressed by and then they end up jobless and in debt and instead we should be saying to people if you have practical skills, if you have vocational skills you should be pursuing them and be proud of pursuing them rather than um, pursuing a degree. I mean, you said you didn't go to university. You're probably a lot more well off than a lot of people who did go to university and thought that that was the only way that they were able to succeed. I know, but I think what's happened, so for me personally, I left school with pretty much nothing. Again, won't be surprised. With people at home going, you can tell she's not educated. Um, you know, but I think in life, there's more to education than just what letters or numbers or names you've got or titles you've got after your name. So my story, I left school with pretty much nothing at 16. I left a bit before I was 16, actually. Um, 
And then what happened was I did a what we used to call a YTS, an apprenticeship, and it was looked down upon so snobbly. There was so much snobbery. That's, that's the issue. These are wonderful things, though. You can learn so much by doing. Exactly. Of course. It's state schools that are the worst, because I went to one of the worst state schools in the country. And the problem is, is that a lot of state schools now view the metrics of sending people to university as some sort of prize of success. And it's how they yeah, measure success, like how many box. people they, they send to, to Oxford or Cambridge or whatever, and actually all the fact that we're doing is tying thousands of students up in debt and a lot of debt to get a piece of paper that is essentially worthless. Mm. And that, in my opinion, is doing them such a massive disservice, but a lot of that is coming from the state schools because they want to, you know, promote their own school and it's all about league tables and sending people to certain places and all you're doing actually, they don't care about the students themselves. Yeah. And they don't care about, about education. It's actually devalued education itself because mm -hmm. the purpose of education always became something beyond it. Because we don't actually believe in our society that knowledge is worth passing on to the next generation. We have a, a real doubt that our, our culture is worthwhile, you know, British culture is worthwhile and you want to give it to the next generation, that sort of thing. That's kind of looked down on. And so university and education becomes about all these other things and so students are there and they're there because they want to get a job and so they're miserable yeah, or it becomes but... about like something else like oh, oh well you're actually not going to get a job right I, you know maybe we made maybe we overpromised. it's about mental health yeah. it's about well-being and then paradoxically you know when you're under stress because it's difficult that becomes unbearable because the whole point you're told is mental health. That's the purpose of your life and your own well-being. You feel stressed out. It's suddenly an existential crisis. We've done a real disservice to universities and to young people by making it all about something else. And I think at the same time, some students, I'm not saying all, based upon my experience anyway, some students see university as just a way of getting a job. So I've put myself in debt. I'm paying for this education. Why aren't you able to get me a job? Do you worry about actually... your levels of debt that you're in? I mean, for me personally, I've actually started paying back my student loan. I think that once you're actually out of it, it can look like a lot, and it, and it is a lot of money, but really, comparatively, I, I have to pay about 170 a month. Um, it's not Do really... you worry about student debt? Yes, and the only reason why is because I've paid £9,000 this year to get strike after strike after strike after strike. And some students... What does that mean? So oh, like our, our lecturers are just striking strikes. over and oh, over, the teacher's over striking. again. So we're, we're not even getting really what, what we're paying for. And now yeah. I'm concerned because the government have now decided to increase the interest rates on our students' own. And they've done that after two years of students not even being able to physically go to their university and That's many true. of them having strikes. So not only did we not get the education that we were paying for in comparison to everybody else, we're now having to pay more for an education that was non-existent. I mean, we're paying effectively nine grand for a glorified YouTube video. Yeah. That's what it was. And but don't you get a discount? So if your education's disrupted and no, you're learning distance? No, no, you don't. None no. at all, no. I, I, no I, I don't want to throw my colleagues under the bus or anything. I think they had some value valid reasons to strike, but it was really the wrong time to do that. I, I feel like, you know, I was part of a group that was really trying to get us back into the lecture halls, back into the classroom. There's, what I do is not something that I can do in my bedroom on a computer. It's about yeah. the experience of being there and like making people feel alive and question everything. That's my goal, what I'm trying to do in a lecture. You cannot you do that do in that your home. bedroom, right? So we were, that was the moment to try for us lecturers to try to tell students we care about you, we care about this. And unfortunately, I think that was probably the wrong time 
to strike. I feel bad saying that, I am, <laughs> but we needed to, and I, I, I do, like as a lecturer, I feel terrible for what you've been through as students. It's been terribly unfair. I think there's about 40 universities now that are planning a marking boycott, which actually means that students aren't going to be able to graduate. So not only are they striking, they're losing their lectures, they're not even marking their work so they can't move on to the next stage in their life, whether that's a master's degree or a job. So they're holding our futures hostage for something that students themselves can't Nothing control. To do. While still charging you the full fee. Though I must say that the university bosses are, else would have to pay. are... The university bosses are the ones <laughs> that you should be angry with. I will yes, defend yeah. my colleagues uh, just that so. little bit. Yeah, but hang on, though, because if you're saying it's the university bosses that you should be angry with, if it's it's the lecturers etc doing the striking yeah and what are they striking for is it pay and uh, stuff like that pensions uh, massive cuts to to pensions um and, what do you call uh, and casualization so let me tell you what it was like for me during lockdown i had a two-year-old uh, sorry she wasn't even two 20 month old and a not quite four-year-old i taught um five classes three of which were new, and I ran a program. I worked all night long without sleeping. I did not sleep, like literally not sleeping, and I worked into the very next day. And I kept working with a two-year-old and a four-year-old, or you know, barely two and four. That's what it was like because they were so understaffed. It was, and it, it was a massive disservice to the students because you got me half dead <laughs> trying to lecture. So this is what people were pushing back against. But I, because, you know, I feel it's a vocation for me being a lecturer. I feel terrible that after two years of a bad experience, we, we then had to strike. Um, and I think that's that was. But when you unfair. say a bad experience, just help me understand. Mm -hmm. When you say you've got a bad experience and you're striking, not you, but they're striking for things like pensions, mm -hmm. there'll be a lot of people sitting. And casualization, it's not just pensions. What's and casualization. Uh, so they they don't hire f people full time. They will hire people to come in and just do a few things they don't actually hire you know they on low pay they'll hire tutors to do things for example so they're not giving they don't give up full-time full-time contracts so in the in the US for example it's a very common practice they you have you know I'm sure you've heard of stories of adjuncts that sleep in their cars that kind of thing of what who sleeps in the car yeah so they'll 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 pay um, lectures very very low amounts of money to teach just single classes, so they will often teach at many different but do you universities. Think, do you think university bosses really are going to listen to people like me? Because let me tell you, none of them have, or very few of them have. So why should we pay the price? Because ultimately, if we so what would if happen we if you just didn't pay your money then? If we didn't go to universities, you wouldn't get a salary. If we weren't paying our tuition fees, people like you wouldn't be getting a salary. And yet you're burdening us with trying to tell these university bosses, you know, help us out who aren't going to listen to us. And the only losers in this are us, time and time and time again. And you're right, we shouldn't be paying the full cost, but people don't care. Students have tried over and over and over again to say, give us our money back, but they don't So care. do you pay it in advance? No. So so obviously, it, it's our student loan will, will yeah, stay the same. So we'll still have to pay uh, £9,250, regardless of whether you get half a year with no lectures or anything, because the government don't care, the universities don't care, the only people that are losing out are students. I would just say be careful about saying that, you're, uh, you know, it's a shame that we have to fight back. I know I know, I feel bad for you. I understand that that sucks. <laughs> um, but this is a, a common thing that, like, professional middle class people will say, oh, but the poor students, oh, but the poor, they have to fight for these sorts of things, whereas it's my job to represent you. I think it's important to, yes, when you, there is an injustice, that it's unfortunate, but you do have to stand up for yourself. Yeah, but you lot are going on strike because you're saying that your pensions are not as way you want them to be. But then on the flip side of that, 
the universities are expecting the students to accept what I would call a grossly substandard service. I, I, think, I think, to be fair, from my experience being at Durham, um, we've had a lot of strike action. The students, the, the students supported the strikes until you put a marking boycott on the table. Then we said enough is enough. Well, uh, I've just realised the time, everyone. I was supposed to have gone to a break a good probably five, ten minutes ago, but I was enjoying that conversation. <laughs> so if you are sitting there at home desperately waiting for the adverts, I do apologise because I held them up. Uh, I'll summarise that last conversation and I'll say the moral of the story is get yourself doing apprenticeships. That's what I say. Right, going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, do you know the size of the demographic or what the demographic makeup is in the UK. I wonder if you do. We'll look at that and more after the break. Hello there, I'm Michelle Juber. This is Jubes & Co. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel broadcaster, Sophie Corcoran, uh, Ashley Frawley, who's a sociologist at uh, Swansea University, and political commentator, Dominique Samuels. Now, uh, did you just enjoy the adverts there? Do you watch adverts? Is it a favourite pastime of yours? If you do indeed pay even a casual interest in adverts, you might have noticed, or you might be forgiven in thinking, should I say, that everyone pretty much in the UK is part of some blended, multi multi-coloured, uh, gender-fluid, God-knows-what-sexuality family. Uh, with that in mind, then, it's no wonder that a poll recently has found that most people overestimate the size of minority groups in the UK. I'll give you an example. Uh, if I was to ask you what percentage of the UK is transgender, what would you say? Apparently, the perception is it would be 5%. The answer, in reality, is 0.3 to 0.7%. Uh, if I then went on to ask you, for example, uh, what is the perception, what is the population of black um, people in this country, you'd probably say apparently around 20% would be the guess, and it's only 3% in reality. And when you look at actually what, uh, what percentage do white uh, people make up, the perception is that only 65% of the UK are white. The reality is 87%. Dominique, I'm going to come to you, because I find this a fascinating topic, so I do. Because there is this absolute mismatch. I blame it on things like the adverts. I don't know what advertisers are doing. All of the adverts seem to feature, you know, a demographic that does not represent the country. And I wonder why, and, and then I ponder, is that a problem or not? I mean, the issue is, because of what we're seeing on TV adverts, and because of what's shoved down our throats by a London-centric uh, mainstream media, people often get incorrect perceptions about the demographics of this country. And you could say that's a positive, you could say that's a negative, but I think in many ways it makes people feel as though there is some sort of agenda to deliberately overrepresent and underrepresent certain groups, which then obviously leads to division, societal breakdown, accusations of racism from both sides. But the fact of, when you look at the facts, black people, for example, are overrepresented on, on, on television. I think we're represented about about six percent of TV, TV adverts. TV adverts feature black people when we make up about three point one percent of the population. Uh, the Daily Mail did a study that says ethnic minorities make up twenty two percent of actors and presenters, despite only representing twelve percent of the British population. This is obviously a part of some sort of diversity drive, but I don't think it does you know ethnic minorities any justice by giving them roles um, just because of their skin colour. Even with regards to transgender people. 
We're always having this debate about transgender issues in this country. You'd think that there were transgender people everywhere. That's why we need to change the bathrooms. That's why we need gender-neutral language. And the fact of the matter is, they make up less than 1% of the population. So who are we actually trying to serve? It's just left-wing people, I'm afraid, and woke people trying to find ways to pat themselves on the back, and it doesn't really serve anyone. Say, as a left-wing person, I actually believe in universalism, as left-wing people used to, <laughs> that actually what unites us is more important than what divides us. Mm. That's gone. But I think what's important about this story is that if you look at the press release, they want to say that it's the woke media skewing perceptions of ethnic diversity. But this poll was asked of about 1,800 people. And I'd like to know where those 1,800 people were located, because what they're trying to say is you watch TV, viewer, and you can't be trusted because you see these things and you don't think about it. You, that's your perception of the world. But actually, if you live in London, if you live in a big city, yeah. actually, these perceptions are not far off. Yeah, that's so true. the the um, the poll said that people thought 14% of the country was Muslim. Well, 15% in London is Muslim. 45% is white in mm. London. So it's actually not that far off. So you have to be so careful. You have to be careful with this kind. Exactly, it is London centric. But you have to be careful with this kind of thing because the, we call this a media effects theory, and it's often used as a justification for censorship because it says you viewers are too stupid to make sense of what you're viewing on TV. You voted Brexit because you saw a shiny bus. You know, you, you see adverts and you just act. You know, you're not a thinking human. You have to be very careful about these kinds of things. Yes, we're reeled in with this idea, oh, it's the woke media. But actually, it's an attack on people. And it's saying, oh, we have to be careful what we put on the media because people are stupid and they can't think and they just imbibe what they see. When actually what's interesting about this is if you live in a city, that perception is not that far off. Mm. Well, do you live in a city? What do you think uh, if you are in a big city and you watch these adverts? Many of you writing in, by the way, and say, Michelle, it's not just the adverts. Um, some of you are saying, what about the soaps? Um, apparently, it's on the soaps. I've got to say, I don't watch soaps. Neither do I. Um, but many people are saying it is. It's the soaps that are experiencing this as well. But anyway, if you're in a city, is it more reflective of where you live, Sophie, your thoughts? Uh, well, I think it's all about missing context because... I do business, and one thing that a lot of businesses do are diversity reviews. And people look at them, and we were doing... I can't remember what our module was, but we were looking at a company and basically seeing how diverse it was. And people would immediately go, oh, my God, there's only X amount of this sort of minority. And it looks bad on paper, yes, but when you actually look at what they make up as a percentage of the population, yeah. it makes sense. And not only are we giving minorities thinking that we have X, you know, over populating them in terms of over-representation, but also giving these people far too much power. I mean, ultimately, the trans issue is the biggest one. 0.7% of people in this country are trans, and yet we are sacrificing the health and the well-being of 50% of women to make them happy. We are giving minorities in this country far, far, far too much power because we've lost this idea of, you know, the majority rules because apparently that's a bad thing. But ultimately, we should be, when it comes to the trans issues, putting the majority first because, well, they are the majority. So I think this whole woke idea is trying to give minorities power because they don't want equality. Now what they want is sort of the opposite of that, where they want to leapfrog the other. So they don't want us on equal footing. They want oh, the minorities to be privileged. Right. So we're giving minorities far, far too much power than what they should have, which is skewing people's ideas of the proportion. Well, I, I am going to do... Uh, I'm going to stand up for the minorities because I actually wonder 
it, when you say, oh, the minorities want to leapfrog, they want to do this, I wonder, is it really the minorities? Because most of the minority people, if you look at some of the groups, they probably just want to, like we talk about trans and stuff, they probably just want to get on with their lives and just yeah, whatever. It's, it's I the think left it's the speak on people's behalf. I don't even think it's the left. I think it's activist group who have got financial um, yeah. tentacles. Their objective in life, they've got financial objectives, uh, financial kind of incentives mm -hmm. to push these agendas because without many of these agendas being pushed, these uh, organisations would have no reason to exist. So I, yeah. don't, I don't even necessarily think it is the minority groups. I think it's the activists campaigning also, on their behalf for yeah, their own financial gain. And also, at the same time, when you focus so much on, um, say, your adverts, on your soaps, on, on, on the actors that you see behind, um, in front of the camera, you also forget that in terms of, say, uh, black representation behind the camera, in terms of directors, producers, etc., Black people are actually vastly underrepresented because of this surface level focus of, oh, you know, we need this many black people well, so that th there's an. Yeah, it's, it, it? it's box ticking when really, tangibly, maybe we should be actually focusing on, on things that are more important, but, like black representation behind the camera. But we're so focused on surface level issues they don't which actually is care. mentioned that we forget. They don't actually care about the minorities. They just, want it, they just want the imagery of, oh, look, we're doing great. And it's the bigotry of low expectations, I think, has, has been one thing that we see with minorities, is that people think, you know, you are trans, you are black, so you can't do it. You need us, us normal majority people, to come and be your saviours. That's is the saviour complex. Yeah. And, and also... These people don't need help. Part of it is it's a hangover from the past as well, because there was a time where you know, to have ethnic minorities on TV screens, it wasn't something that was liked. I mean, even in America, say, specifically, um, black people weren't allowed on the cover of magazines. They had to have cartoons instead. Um, they weren't allowed to have their own faces on their own album covers, for example. It had to be a white person. So I think because of this sort of, you know, we term it white guilt, we're almost trying to overcompensate because of the sins of the past. But what that actually does is it gives us a skewed idea of the present and it doesn't allow us to actually reflect on the mistakes we made in the past. Instead, we're just glossing over it and pretending none of those issues existed. Well, or the problems of the present are all rooted in the past. Exactly. That's another thing. Like, I'm, I'm Ojibwe, indigenous, Canadian, obviously mixed with white, very white looking. But that's the thing is like, it's like when, I, like when we joined in the trucker protest, it was like, what are you doing here? And it was like, well, we want to self-determine. We want bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. We want to think about, you know, what goes inside of our bodies and decide for ourselves. And it's like, no, 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 you get back. Literally, our indigenous leaders said, you're needed in your communities. This is not your cause. Well, yes, I literally, literally don't that. get it, yeah. though, because we want progress, and these groups say that they want progress but refuse to acknowledge when progress has been made. Mm. So I, I don't... And do you know what I have a suspicion of as well? I think there's a big desperation to achieve equal outcomes in society. So, yeah. for example, yeah. if I've got two white people, I need two black people, I need two gay people, I need two trans people, so it's all equal. But I think when you strive for equal outcome as opposed to equal opportunities, then you're artificially manufacturing... Yeah. whatever that outcome is. And that, surely for me, is wrong because I believe in equal opportunity for mm. all. I absolutely believe in representation. Yeah, I think it's key and critical and crucial and all the rest of it. But I just think sometimes we focus on uh, manufacturing artificial outcomes. And I don't know who benefits from that. Well, I do, actually. I ponder it's things like uh, some of these organisations yeah. that I've just been <laughs> mentioning. But uh, let me know your thoughts on all of that.
Good evening to you. This is Jubes and Kerr with me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. It is Ladies' Night. We've got my panel broadcaster, Sophie Corcoran, Ashley Frawley, who's a sociologist based at Swansea University, and political commentator, Dominique Samuels. Elizabeth has written in saying that us four women uh, have made her proud to be a woman. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, it does make me wonder, though, we're still even allowed to say woman these days? <laughs> I don't know. Cervix traveller. A cervix have a womb holder, a birth giver, birth giver. Oh, that one what? annoys me, you know. Like, what are the names? Why, why, would, you, thing, why would you carry a child for nine months and have it basically split your vagina to be called a birth giver? That's raging me. <laughs> a womux. Anyway, I digress. I'm not even supposed to be talking about this. I'm supposed to be talking about uh, buy now, pay later. So let me get myself back on track, shall I? Uh, did you know what the Never Never was? Um, is it a whole thing? I don't think so. Anyway, um, what do you like when it comes to buying things? Uh, do you buy it? Do you pay it off? What, what's your relationship like with credit cards? Um, do you buy stuff that you don't need? Do you use all these kind of... You know, what do they call them, like payday services, etc.? Um, I've got to say, the buy now, pay later sector... Uh, it's going to be worth over £30 billion by the end of the decade. And now Apple uh, is trialling a way to make it even easier. If you use Apple Pay, for example, on your phone, you can basically buy something uh, at some point soon and you won't have to pay it back for up to four months later. Um, I do wonder about this. I wonder, I can't help myself. I like technology, Sophie, but I can't help myself worry are we just kind of incentivizing people to buy stuff that, quite frankly, they can't afford? This is a very, very bad idea for students. <laughs> very <laughs> bad idea for students because people are going to live beyond their means and students are going to get themselves in all sorts of financial trouble with things like Klarna and Apple Pay because they're going to buy things that they can't afford, they're going to rack up unbelievable amounts of interest and then they're going to get themselves in a financial situation they can't get out. Technology is not always good and it can be bad for a lot of people especially young people who are a little bit credit card happy shall we say but most of them won't be able to apply for a credit card so when you give them something that is so accessible to be able to buy now pay later mm -hmm. and make it much easier we're going to get a lot of people in my generation especially in a lot of trouble mm. yeah Dominic? i think for maybe even being a bit of a paranoid wreck here but i just feel as though it sort of normalizes this it normalizes debt it normalizes not able being able to buy things outright and not actually saying i've got the money to be able to afford this let me put the money down now it's mine i feel like it's getting us used to paying for things in installments because it's something that has really expanded in popularity i mean it started with klarna um i've mm. used klarna a few times before um but now with this apple pay thing Think of the amount, the millions of people that have iPhones and the fact that it's interest-free as well. Think about the, the amount of people that are going to willingly get themselves into debt and it doesn't actually feel like debt because you're just tapping your phone. It's, it sort mm. of desensitises desensitizes us to the reality of money. And I suppose that does sort of tie into this sort of cashless society that is on its way where cash is going to be a thing of the past. So... Of course, paying for things in instalment through, through Apple Pay, through your phone, will be something that's completely normal. See, uh, one of the things that Dominique just hit on, Ashley, briefly, uh, that worries me, actually, is that so many people are now kind of desisting of cash when you try and yeah. pay somewhere with Coal Hard Ready. They're like, no, thank you, it has to be your card. Mm. Great if you're someone that uses tech, etc. But what about someone if you want to pay with cash? It's so difficult mm. these days. Yeah, if you're an I, old person. I, I just want to disagree, though. I actually think that there's some good stuff in here. <laughs> I, I don't think... I think giving people the opportunity to own things 
um, is a good thing. And sometimes I think a lot of the, I mean, obviously it's debt and we have to be careful with debt. I understand that. But I just think some of the opposition is about, hey, you working class people living beyond your means with your cheap holidays and so on. These things used to be exclusive. Mm. And I think sometimes it's a suspicion that the good things in life are coming too quickly and too easily. No. And, and, and that's what worries me. I think it's all like, look, I can't afford a couch, but I need a couch. It's great that, that it's that's available in installments. That, that's different. You know, you're going to have things like cars that you buy on finance and mortgages that you buy on finance and things like sofas. I don't know, a person never bought a sofa, but you, you, can, you, can, you buy can buy on finance. finance. But now this is going to change it to where people are going to be buying clothes on finance. <laughs> and, and little things, especially young people that are really swept up within influencer culture. But to go back to what you've said, yes, we have a cashless society and this is going to feed into it. And it's bad because look what happened with Prime Minister Trudeau when they had the trucker protest, and you'll know this, he froze their bank accounts. So it's good. we're going to get to a point where people say, oh, I'm sorry, your card has declined because of your political beliefs. It gives people far, far too much control that we shouldn't be given to governments. And you can trust the government all you like, but you should never give power to people because when an opposition comes into power, they also have that right. Well, never mind cards being declined because of your political beliefs. Some of you might have seen the story the other day that one of our producers had his haircut <laughs> declined halfway through because of his political beliefs because he worked here, a barber. Yeah, yeah they did. Christian true story. Mitchell, wasn't it? Halfway through the, the guy's haircut, the barber found out he worked at GB News and won't finish his cut. Jesus. Um, wow. Is he Dear me, am I allowed to say that? Dear me. Anyway, <laughs> look at the time. Look at the time. It is time for us to say goodbye. I've just been saying that you can't spend cash anywhere. Annie in Norwich has just emailed in and says, well, at my local kebab shop, they'll only take cash. So there you go. <laughs> you're sitting there with pound coins rattling away and you don't know what to do with them. Get yourself to Norwich. Uh, Annie's local kebab shop. You can spend them all there. Right, that is all we've got time for. I've thoroughly enjoyed my panel tonight, as has many of my viewers. So thank you, ladies, for your time. Thank you at home for your companies. Uh, have yourself a wonderful evening and I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>